Welcome to Q Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Shreya. And I'm Tenna. And we are your ex-host for Q Talks. We're delighted to be handing over to Max and Emma, and are really looking forward to the episodes they bring out. It's been an absolute pleasure to be hosting Q Talks with Utele and I've had a fantastic time doing Q Talks over the last couple of years. I'm really looking forward to the episodes that Max and Emma will be recording going forwards and I'd like to now invite Max and Emma to introduce yourselves as the new hosts of Q Talks. Hi everyone, my name is Max Murphy. I'm a third year undergraduate student at Pembroke College where I study politics and international relations. I've been a massive fan of Q Talks for a while now, so I'm really excited to get started on this new series of podcasts. Hi guys, I'm Emma Petolari. I'm a second year PhD in biochemistry student, and I'm very excited to be the new co-host of Q Talks and to start this entrepreneurship and innovation journey with you. This week on Q Talks, we are talking to Catalin Carico, the person behind the mRNA vaccine. Catalin was brought up in Hungary, and then in 1985, she moved to the States with her husband and then two-year-old daughter. Throughout her career, Catalin was told that her ideas wouldn't work. But thanks to her persistence, Catalin's groundbreaking technology has saved millions of lives during the pandemic. Emma and I are very, very excited to talk to her today. Hi, Catalin. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Not only are you inundated with speaker requests at the moment, but your flight was cancelled this morning, so we feel extra lucky to be able to talk to you today. To start things off, um, how does it feel to know that your research has had such a positive impact on so many people since the COVID-19 vaccines came out? I mean, do you feel proud or satisfied? I mean, have you even grasped the scale of the impact of your work or is it still sinking in? So I, I am very happy. Thank you for inviting me here. I am very happy that um, uh, something that I was working on for years is so beneficial for so many people. Of course, I never wanted to develop a vaccine. Why I worked on it to make it non-inflammatory because I want to use it for therapeutic purposes. So the mRNA would code for some therapeutic protein, which would be used for treating patient who has suffering stroke or other diseases. And, and so um, I expected that for those people will be very one, two, three people. You know, I was waiting that maybe in my lifetime, at least one person will be helped. And so that's what I was uh, expecting. And um, so I am, I am very happy. And, and the, you know, it is difficult to, to say that, oh, I did it. it, it I, I always uh, feel that so many people, because uh, I relied on many, many scientists who came before us. Before me, you know, I many of them is not alive anymore, and then I rely on their work and my colleagues, and I learn from everybody, and we did together, and you know, with the companies, uh, uh, did a marvelous job. So everybody was contributing. It is a, as a, uh, it is a common effort. I mean, before we get into your fascinating career, I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in hearing about how everything started for you. So please, could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what it was like, and how you came to love biochemistry and all of your work? Yeah, so I am a very unusual person on one way, because I was I grew up in a small town, 10,000 people in the middle of Hungary, the plain, and um, 
my parents who just had a, a elementary education they were very intelligent and uh, uh, encouraged me and my sister to study but uh, you know finishing high school was already something uh, we could achieve but with my sister you know both of us went to university both we get phd's and and uh, and uh, so it was, um, we work hard and this, we learned from our parents early on that uh, uh, hard work is part of uh, life. And then we had uh, like uh, uh, animals around the house, garden, and I like to watch things. So I have seen, you know, uh, chicken is coming out from the egg because we, we had chicken and we put the eggs and <laughs> so, and my father was butcher. And I watched, they told me even when I was a little girl, I, I like to watch what is inside. And my mother and my sister went inside the house. They didn't like to see that. But uh, I was curious and I get great teachers. And, and so all of this helped and, uh, to get to the university, which was very difficult to get in. And then I graduated there and, and started to work uh, early on, on in summer in in a lipid group, which was everybody said, lipids? Okay, this is so boring. You know, everybody was in genetics or something. But uh, eventually, this is where I first uh, made liposome and uh, delivered DNA in uh, in the 70s. And it was, which captured my imagination always that, oh, we can deliver with uh, genetic material, with lipids. So, I can tell all of the students that if they find something boring, you never know that maybe that will be the most important knowledge you will gather. So. And then you moved to America, right? Please could you talk us through that a little bit? So I, in Hungary, I work with RNA. Actually, I made small RNA, which was uh, uh, had antiviral effect. Actually, Ian Kerr in London, he discovered this short molecule, 77, and I graduated 78. And from the lipid group, I went to the RNA group. So who knew at that point that one day this belonged to so close to each other because we have to wrap up the RNA. Uh, but we tried to do this uh, antiviral compound and I was so enthusiastic about, can you imagine even today we don't have really a good antiviral compound. But the delivery was uh, a issue, problem, and we lost funding and I had to find a job. Actually, I applied to EN Care. Uh, uh, to to get a position in his laboratory in London and also in Madrid and uh, Montpellier, but nobody could, uh, everybody said that bring, bring your, uh, you know, the support, but I couldn't get support. I was behind the Iron Curtain. So this is, I get a job offer in Philadelphia. Uh, Professor Suhadolnik uh, uh, at Tapla University was also interested in this small RNA antiviral compound and he was happy that I can do an essay he wanted to establish in his lab and that's how I get there. That sounds amazing. Thank you for that. Could we talk a bit about um, COVID now? So skipping forward a little bit, I guess. And um, Emma's got quite a few questions, but for the first one, I just wanted to start with, um, do you remember the moment you first heard about the outbreak of COVID-19 in Wuhan. I mean, what, what was your initial reaction that this might be the moment where all your work will pay off? Actually, I was in Hungary and I get very sick. And then I heard, oh, in China, maybe, maybe, maybe I get that. And uh, so uh, when I went back uh, in Germany, I tried to get the test, but they said at that time it was known only in Italy. And uh, so they said, if you have not been in Italy, we are not testing you. So that 
for I got for like three days, I call up my colleagues that if the morning uh, I am not calling, then, you know, come open the door because maybe I am dead. <laughs> I was so sick, but I, uh, probably I was not that. But um, So I, I, I heard about, but I, I did not imagine that it will come all the way to the whole wide world. I, I was not. I I was working actually on vaccine, although I told you that uh, originally my main goal was to develop mRNA for therapy. But uh, with colleague uh, Drew Weissman at Penn, we already started to work with the vaccines. And also when I came at BioNTech in 2013, in 2015, we started to work on the infectious disease vaccine. And uh, I participated in the Pfizer project, which was started in 2018. So before the COVID came, you know, that we already worked together with Pfizer. But uh, I did not imagine that this will happen. I did not. Yeah, um, that's incredible to hear about this story. Um, And I think it's really nice that we have now the privilege to speak with uh, an RNA specialist like yourself. Um, I think it would be really useful if you could explain to us what is an mRNA vaccine and how do you make these mRNA vaccines non-infectious to humans? So uh, you have to know that this coronavirus is also an RNA. It has a messenger RNA. It codes for 30-something different protein. What we are doing when we create a vaccine, that uh, we are just taking one out of this long uh, uh, mRNA sequence, just one which will code for the protein, which called spike protein, which is on the surface of the virus. And that's what uh, can neutralize uh, antibody generated against this protein can neutralize and can be helpful to prevent infection. So it is like you are getting an infection, but you are just getting one little piece of that RNA, not the whole virus. And because this is just a little piece you get, that little piece cannot replicate. So you are controlling. It just can degrade. Whereas if you get the infection, it can go and replicate and go different part of the body and then it is out of control. So the infection can be very dangerous. Whereas here, you you just deliver this RNA, enters to the immune cells, generate the protein, and then it presents, it goes to the lymph nodes, it presents, and then uh, you start to make antibody against uh, this protein, as well as cellular immunity. It's very important for, because the RNA-based uh, vaccine, you can get uh, cellular immunity, meaning that... Uh, your immune system will recognize the infected cells. Because when the virus is circulating, you know, that surface uh, uh, protein is there and then uh, antibody can recognize that and can neutralize the virus. But then the virus enters to the cell, you know, the antibody just can look around and says, I cannot see. And then comes the cell, your immune cells, and recognize that, aha, this cell is infected. I have to kill it. Okay, that's really powerful. So essentially, even though that you now have presented this viral protein or the viral protein part of the spike protein, you still don't have any risk about maintaining it. It's going to get uh, removed from the body. Emma, this is very funny because for years and years, everybody criticized, oh, this RNA is no good. It degrades so quickly. You hardly get any protein. It is already gone. And now that I have to say that (laughs) now to people who are worried that, oh, it will be with me forever. I said, oh, God, you know, 
why the hell we have to put in minus 70 because it degrades so quickly. You put in the body and very quickly degrade. It is just uh, enough time to make the protein and the RNA degrade so quickly. You know that uh, none of the dinosaur bone, they never isolated RNA. Everything was DNA. You know, there is no RNA. The RNA is so labile. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, um, on that note of people being worried and kind of hesitant, I was wondering whether we could talk a little bit about uh, the hesitancies um, around vaccines or basically around any new technology like that of the mRNA. Um, it's a new, exciting idea, and it's an idea which was shooted with some skepticism initially in the scientific community, as you said, and also as you have mentioned in the past, um, you kind of uh, were unable to secure grants for this research, I guess, because it was quite radical from years ahead. So I was wondering if you could play the devil's advocate role and describe any arguments that could be made to justify people that are hesitant to take an mRNA vaccine. So there, there are people who, who want to know. And uh, I realized that we scientists like to talk another scientist, help us, we understand each other. And we did not talk to grandma to explain what we are doing. And we should learn to educate the public with a simple language, because that's actually the anti-vaxxers are doing. You know, they are saying, oh, the bird is flat, isn't that? Can you see? It is flat. Yeah. And they are saying such a stupid, simple thing. But, you know, everybody says, yeah, it is flat. And this is one thing. So there, there are people who I think want to understand and who with the other thing you have to remember that uh, anything is novel. Let's say, let's say the Röntgen, hundred years ago. You know what he he showed that it can go through the flesh, showing the bone. If you read, there are people who were there and that said, oh, if the X-ray is coming through the clothes, they might see me naked. And so there were an effort that in the uh, uh, theater uh, binocular cannot have. Uh, x-ray in it because then the people can see you naked yeah so now again who who were instigating that just like for the uh, this anti-vaxxer you will see that they want to sell a product they want to make money that was the, they did also in the case of uh, Röntgen because they started to sell underwear here in in the UK which uh, they said the uh, x-ray is not coming through so people started to spend money on underwear, which was said, you know, the X-ray resistant. Of course, nobody knew. Of course, it was not. They did not realize that, of course, it uh, the, it goes through the flesh also. But people try to make money on other people who are not educated and maybe afraid or something. And uh, they offer another product. And this is, is, again, repeating itself because the people were, you know, and today nobody thinks that, you know, there will be a Röntgen in a binocular and you are going to the theater and people will see through your clothes. Yeah, so it is repeating itself. But of course, you know, there is this big um, uh, uh, social media and they can spread this news. I think it's really interesting hearing about this, Catalin, from the person who, you know, is so heavily involved in it all, um, you know, with regards to anti-vaxxers. And th this might be a weird question, but I, I would find it quite interesting. Have you had any engagements with anti-vaxxers? Have you spoken to any? And if so, how's that conversation even gone? Is it something you just have to disengage from or do you convince them by showing them the science? H how does that all work? Yeah, so so I had in the social media, you know, some sending me, you know, I should be hanged and you know that so that 
people who are asking questions, you know, I respond. You know, they are concerned. I, I could feel that it is a when the question is already loaded. <laughs> I know that the, the, he already set up my. I, I won't respond and don't care. Nobody attacked me on the street. Hopefully they won't do it. Of course, the more dangerous is one of the RNA scientists who did early work. You know, he became anti-vaxxer and then people believe because somebody is a physician or you have some, you know, Nobel Prize or something. They think that you know the things. No, you know that... Uh, by the time I told my colleagues also, you, you get old and you would say stupid thing. I said, tell me also that go go away. And some people, you know, get the credit and, and they say things like uh, Montagnier, for example. You know, he got the Nobel Prize, but what he's saying is nonsense. And I remember, you guys are young, but I remember when I went to the U.S. Uh, in 85 and then that time the HIV yeah, and there were there were a criticism for a member of the American Academy of that uh, HIV is not caused by uh, uh, virus, and you know that it uh, for a while it is good to get critics because then you make more experiments just to make sure that you prove or more, and then when it is so obvious and somebody still saying it, it's, it's just counterproductive. I always listen to the criticism because I say, yeah, maybe that way because this is. You know, in sciences, you have some idea and then you have some some kind of thing is not fit there. And and some people say, OK, forget those because this is this is how things, you know, just like uh, watching Colombo and the film, you know, that at the beginning you think, OK, this is obvious who who was uh, doing things. But find a little uh, clue and then you know that, oh, other other direction we have to go. So, yeah. So this is critic is good because this. But, uh, you know, can be on a certain level already. When it is already so proven something that is, uh, you know, counterproductive. Yeah, that is absolutely true. But uh, thankfully, you have achieved a a spectacular achievement with these vaccines. And I mean, this, um, this achievement has never been done before. Although there, we have seen in some instances that uh, people get uh, reinfected or require booster shots. So can you explain to us why, why that is the case and what we need to do to further improve these vaccines? So, so you know, people said, oh, this, that and that vaccine is lifetime. Yeah, don't forget, this is a, a respiratory disease. Many of these, you know, whether I just mentioned HIV, you need physical contact yeah? or many other, other infection. And uh, so what happened is that um, when you have high level of antibody in your blood, then it everything coming to, to the milk who is breastfeeding, for example, you will get an, that person will get antibody in the milk or antibody will IgG was present in the saliva. So in that case, when you have high level of antibody circulating, then you won't get infected because immediately when it gets to the oral cavity, then it is neutralized. What happened is that you will have memory cells because you get two vaccines. You will have memory cells who can, when you get, again, the virus can make antibodies, can kill, cellular killing can happen. So what happened then, your antibody levels goes down. You will have in your bone marrow those memory cells. But what happened is now that if the antibody level is low in the blood, you won't get in the oral cavity. So you can be infected. You won't get very sick 
especially if you are young and uh, you don't have other respiratory other disease, there is not a problem. The problem is that if you have a child and the child is not vaccinated, because now that you can infect that person, and right now the children's are quite, uh, uh, many of them get uh, ended up in the hospital. So that's why if you get the third dose, for example, 10 times higher level of antibody will circulate in your blood than after the second dose. So you will have very, very high level and it gradually, of course, it goes down, but now it will be not six months, but maybe uh, much longer will be present. And the, if the virus would not be around, you know, that so much, then it, it wouldn't be uh, a problem that uh, we get infected and because you won't get sick if you were vaccinated. You won't get very sick. But depends on also the dose. You remember people showed in a, a Harvard study that um, um, everybody can everybody made a anti, uh, made antibody when they get infected. Those who survived and not get very sick, they get little dose, and then very early they could make a lot of antibody. And those people who died, they showed that they made antibody, but it was too late already. They already infected cells were so many and the antibody cannot see the infected cells and that's why they died and and the young doctors you remember at the beginning in china who died also because they get too high dose and then your immune system is no matter how young you are how strong your immune system is you just cannot catch up if you inhale so much virus and get all all the way to your lung so that many components there is not a one fit all things you know that so it depends on if somebody's healthy still you don't know that uh, what kind of gen genetics you have because they already identify three genes which can make you you never get very infected with anything and then still you can die from this because uh, three genes actually exactly what i work in early on this two prime five prime link uh, oligonucleotide that enzyme who can make that if you have a genes which is not making, uh, uh, not working very well, those people died from from the COVID because somehow it is uh, critical to fight the virus. So even if you are healthy and young, you still can have such genetics that you will get sick, but most of them won't. Absolutely, and I think this is really insightful to kind of consider all these different parameters that might affect how the vaccine works and that we should also be aware of. So this is really important. Um, but I wanted to kind of now touch a little bit on your more um, entrepreneurial ventures, because aside from being a wet lab researcher, you also co-founded RNARX. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience as a founder of a company and what motivated you to start your own venture? Did you find anything surprising or unexpected from this experience? I was an academic researcher, but, uh, you know, I was terminated, demoted a couple of times. So I thought that, okay, maybe I will make a company. And uh, the, with uh, Drew Weissman, with colleagues, we established, we get the patent. We tried to get for our company, but we didn't get, but apply for a grant for the NIH and we receive support and we want to develop erythropoietin coding mRNA for anemia. And we demonstrated in animals that really it works. And uh, so I learned a lot, 
But uh, actually, for the company-related thing, I learned more at BioNTech because in my company, after University of Pennsylvania gave the patent to another company, you know, without patent, the company could not get uh, any money for any, any investors because if you have nothing to protect there. So for me, going from academia to, to the industry was uh, quite delightful. First of all, in, in academia, I could see that, you know, you have to make more and more papers and uh, publication and who cares publication, just numbers is important because you get better CV and, uh, you know, and, and just uh, shining up your own <laughs> uh, credential. And now that you go to the, you have to have a product which functional, you cannot fake it <laughs> that, oh, we did a lot of work. If this work is not creating a product which functional, then everybody can go home and we can close down. So that was that was very important for me to feel that, okay, we have to do something which meaningful. The other is at the university, at least in the US, everybody, you know, oh separately. They are competing. They if they want to collaborate on something already starting that who will be the first author, last author, and they didn't even start it already fighting. Now that you go to industry, who cares? There is no paper. We have to all of us have to work together to make that product functional. So it was so the love that, you know, everybody was pushing and working so that I found that it it is important. So if somebody wants to go to industry and then they should try. And uh, I also tell colleagues when they said, oh, we should do this and I have that idea. I said, oh, go and make a company and then you can dictate. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And it's great to have this freedom to pursue your scientific curiosity in industry with the ultimate goal of translating the research, it's very, very important. So in terms of uh, having founded your company and being in industry after academia, is there anything, if you had to do it all over again, that you would do differently? Something you would want to gain or something you would want to avoid losing during this journey? So when I look at back, I thought that maybe on one day I get an award, I would say thank to all of those people who fired me, who demoted me, because I, you know, you would automatically say that, oh, how should I avoid those bad things? But those bad things happened for one reason and then ended up learning from it and uh, sending me on a on a path that um, uh, where I ended up. And so uh, So you know that in science, you have to learn a lot because I never had uh, enough money to pay a technician or anybody. And I, because I was uh, demoted from faculty, so I didn't have a student. I did all of the experiment with my own hands. I am 58 years old and I am doing all, running the gel, picking up the radioactive material, defrosting the freezer, writing the paper, writing the grant. So everything as not typical in these days, usually, you know, big lab, a lot of people and uh, competing with each other. And yeah, so I don't know if I would end up laboratory and it would be good to learn from each other. But I, I also learn, you know, paying attention. And I don't know that if something would happen differently, that whether it would have been better or not. <laughs> but people ask me that why I insisted, you know, why I didn't give it up, but one thing I can tell you that um, in high school, I was reading this uh, Hans Scheyer book, 
Hans Scheyer was Janusz Scheyer, was a Hungarian, and they translated to Hungarian. And we wrote him a letter in high school, and he responded. And immediately, we everybody was reading his book because he wrote the letter to us in the small town. And uh, in his book, he said, you know, the, he coined the word stress, which previously was used in physics. And uh, he said that, um, believe it or not, uh, life without stress is boring. You don't even get up. You don't have any. Why, why you should get up? So you need stress. But you have to have a positive stress, which encouraging you and with stimulates you and not like with put down. And uh, so he also said that you have to learn how to convert the negative stress to positive one. So, you know, you are terminated in your position. Yeah. And then you say, oh, I have a new opportunity now that I can do something else. <laughs> What was important for me also that he said that, and I could see that many students get discouraged with things, that they start to look at the, the fellow fellow workers, oh, that that other person it works less and, and get more money and promoted, and I am not. And then immediately you are paying attention to something you cannot change. Instead of whatever you can change, make a better experiment, focus on that. And so that's what I could uh, say as a message that um, don't don't care about what others around, you know, how they advancing in their promotion and whatnot. Uh, pay attention what they are doing so you can learn from that and make sure that you have good relation with, with all of the fellow students. Because when I wanted to realize that I have to make nucleoside modified RNA, I call up those who were in the same dormitory because I, I follow his work and, and, uh, Thomas Kish, he was in France and he already discovered how naturally nucleoside modification incorporated to the RNA. I asked, hey, Thomas, send me some, some enzyme. I have to modify my RNA. And he's always, oh, not, not this simple. And he, he gave me a lot of advice, but, you know, we couldn't do. Then I call up the other uh, student, fellow student, because he was working in organic chemistry where I can buy modified nucleoside triphosphate. So what I would say that a student, look around, those, those uh, other students will be your colleagues, your, your advisor, your competitor, whatnot, but you make good connection, learn from them, follow them what they are doing, because you will need them one day. You know, I was coming from a little town. So, so when I went to the uh, University of Pennsylvania, you know that the high rise, all of these smart scientists, big group, world famous people getting those awards and, and you can feel intimidated. Everybody knows so much and you are feel that, you know, oh my God, I, I don't know anything. I, you feel that you are lost. And I want to tell the student that believe themselves. I, I also told us, you know, that, how could I, in from the small town woods, think about something they they don't? And then I just said, you know, why not? And I was starting learning English when I was nineteen because in the small town nobody could teach English. And and that's what the same I told my daughter because my daughter is a two times Olympic champion. She get one gold medal here in London when we were here the last time. And um, so that at the beginning when she was uh, competing and uh, was you know, rowing against some world famous person, and she was felt this, uh, yeah, you know, that, oh my God, you know, I cannot, cannot beat. And I said, why not? Maybe you will. And so the same thing I was telling myself that, why not? Maybe, maybe me. And thinking something nobody is thinking about. So 
That's what I would say to students, you know, believe themselves, enjoy science because, and, and uh, don't think that this is what they want. This is, you know, that's success that everybody's paying attention on me. No, that's, that's not. 40 years, what I was doing every day, the laboratory, the little problem solving, and then coming up the solution. Oh, that's, that's every day was a little victory. That's what encouraging the people, not that, you know, get the award or something. I was very happy with 40 years without any award. Okay. So you have to, if you scientist or whatever you do, okay. If you want to be rich, don't go science. You won't get rich there, but you don't need the money because this will be your hobby. And then that's what you want to do always <laughs> reading about or doing. Yeah. I think that's a, a brilliant note to end on there, Catalin. Um, Thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. And I think all the listeners will have enjoyed that just as much as Emma and I did. So thank you. I hope that they learn something and will be positively changed their life. Thanks very much to Catalin for joining us at Cute Talks. I hope you found this episode as fascinating as we did. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team at QTech who have all been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening and please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You will also find us at qtech.io-qtalks.